Good morning, IGC. My name is Michael Kwong. I'm a member of the church. Uh, it's a privilege to share God's word with you this morning. Uh, the portion of scripture I selected this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 55 to 58. So you have your bulletin, either the printed copy or the electronic copy. You can follow along. I will begin to read God's word. Verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father God, we gather here to listen to your word. Bless those who hear it, those who hear it, and the one who speak it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I chose this topic, I think, for very obvious reason. Before the pandemic, few of us actually think of death that much. Um, hardly ever we hear sermons about death itself. In 2020, my family, Linda and I, my daughter, received seven messages, phone calls, email, whatnot, and telling us that someone that we know had passed away. I remember one brother, we had a online Zoom meeting in the middle of May, and he died just a few weeks later. No goodbyes, no funerals. I can't be there to hug the family, no last viewing. Just like that, with a text or a message, our relationship ended suddenly. I remember when I was young, my, my mom wouldn't let us say the word death. As if the mere mention of the word will bring it into reality. It's superstitious, obviously. But you know what? I found that even among us in a Christian circle, we seldomly talk about death. But you know what? Life and death is basically the two sides of the same coin. You cannot talk about life without talking about death. Because the day that you were born, you began to die. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, pain, suffering, and death are part of our lives. And they will remain so until the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is inevitable. For Hebrew 9.22 tells us, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Now, aren't you glad the word once is in the verse? You know, death, I see death as an equal opportunist. Everybody get it once. No more, no less. 
Now, different people have different point of view or perspective on death. Some prefer the idea that the death is the end of everything. They believe that after one dies, he will cease to exist in any realm of reality. It's like a burnout candle. It's gone. Poof. No more. So there is no need to talk about hope or the afterlife because there is no future to speak of. So let's enjoy life to the fullest since we only live once. Now, then there are people who believe life is cyclical. One will be given another chance that if he or she has done well in this lifetime, well, if you haven't done well, you just may become someone's dinner in your next life. This endless cycle of dying and reincarnation gives no hope whatsoever to escape pain, suffering, and death. You will suffer every life that you live and die. Now, with today's relativism, who can say anything we believe is truth? You know, but I find it very interesting that those people who uphold relativism would consult a user manual whenever they don't know how a certain machinery, uh, machinery is, is, is working. How, 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 how does it put together? Because you see, if you don't know how a piece of machinery works, the best thing to do is open the, the, the owner manual, right? To find out how to work, what this button is, is, is for, what the light is for. So you consult the manufacturer, the designer, the maker of that piece of machinery. But I find it very interesting that when we come to the factors or question regarding life, we would depart from that simple logic. Well, when we talk about question about life, who, who is qualified to talk about it? Who is qualified to talk about life? Philosophers? Religious people? Teachers? Well, I think that if we were to go to the source, the maker, the designer of life, we would probably get the answer. So for Christian, we go straight to the source. God told us through the Bible, the origin, the meaning, and the future of life. And that physical death is not the end of all things. Death is a transition process through which we get to a better place and be with a better companion. To Christians, life is not cyclical. And life is not a hopeless, fearful experience. It is a natural process. Yes, there is some degree of anxiety when the time comes. No doubt about that. But I think it's just like you're going to ride the roller coaster for the very first time. You get antsy. You don't know what will happen. You don't, want, you don't know what the feeling is going to be. But you're going to be okay because you are going to get off on the other side where you get on. 
Well, today's text is really a conclusion of an extensive discussion of Paul. The basic premise is that Jesus Christ has risen from his death. This is a truth that is confirmed and cannot be overturned. It is both a historical fact and a historic event. An event that changes everything for humanity forever. Now, I took this text and divided it into three small little portions so we can look at it one at a time. According to your bulletin, you can find the outline. The first part of the first point is the right to challenge death. Verse 55 and 56. Second, Jesus earned the right to challenge death. 57. Therefore, we should serve Jesus energetically. 58. So let's go to point number one. The right to challenge death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Up until the resurrection of Christ, no one has the right to challenge death. For death is the punishment of sin and since we all sin, so we all die. When death calls, no one can escape. There was a man who walked by his home one day and he came face to face with death. Both expressed surprises on their faces. But without a word, they passed each other by. The man was horrified. He went to the wise man and asked, what should I do? And the wise man came up with an idea. You should start now and drive to a very distant city to avoid death so the man get in the car, start his car, and start driving all night, all day, all night. And finally, he arrived that city. He began to pat himself, congratulating himself. Good job. I don't think death can find me here. Just as he was con- congratulating himself, someone tapped him on the shoulder. Hey, I am death. I'm here for you. And he looked very surprised. Why are you here? And death told him, that's exactly how I felt when I saw you yesterday. Because I was told I would find you here today. So you cannot escape death. When you read Genesis 5, the descendants to Noah, one phrase will pop up. And the phrase is, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. It appears eight times in this chapter. Those were a time when people lived over 900 years, and they still died. It is a somber reminder that God's judgment is coming to fruition. This is what happened when we walk away from God. This is the result of mankind's rebellion and disobedience. We tried to be our own God and we ended up a slave to sin and death. Death has the right to our soul, you see. It demands it. It is a lawful possession. It stands up in the court of law. No one can say, I don't want to die, therefore I'm exempt. 
death is brought on by our disobedience and rebellion against God's law. It is a result of our own choosing. Paul discussed this in great detail in the book of Romans. Let me read you just a portion of scripture from chapter 8, verse 5 to 7. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. To set the minds on the thing on the flesh is death. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Note these words. We chose how to live. And we choose to live according to our flesh. And because of that, the result is death. So we die because we choose the way we live. So, Paul also elsewhere told us that we gave ourselves over to unrighteousness. In chapter 1 of Romans, Paul also says that we do not give glory to God. We exchange idols for the glory of God. We worship things that are made out of, made of hands, that have ears that cannot hear, the eyes cannot see, that have nose that cannot smell, that have feet that cannot walk. You know what? Worse that, we even worship things that don't have eyes and ears and mouth and nose. Just like Pastor Michael mentioned earlier. Since we work for death, fair and square, therefore, we don't have the right to challenge death. But in verse 55, Paul tells us a very different fact. He challenged the fact that death has a right to possess our soul Picture in your mind, Paul is arguing like a lawyer in the law court. You can hear Paul objecting to the claim that the, that the death has a right to our soul. Your honor, I object. Then he turns to death and says, Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? The powerful grip that you had on sinners has been broken. Don't you see? You have no power to hold on to their souls anymore. You have lost your sting. You have no more power over their lives. How can that be? What happened? Who did it? Paul will answer with just one summary sentence based on his long discussion before. He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory over or through our Lord Jesus Christ. That brings us to point number two. Jesus earned us the right to challenge death. Verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. A boy and his father was driving down the road with the windows down and then suddenly a bee just flew inside the car. Now knowing the boy is highly allergic to the bee sting, both the boy and the father knows that this is very, very dangerous. So the boy frantically trying to avoid the bee. But the father calmly reached over and just grabbed hold of the bee. And then as he opened his hand, the bee, the bee flew away. But the bee was still inside the car. The boy was still nervous, trying to get away from the agitated bee. At this time, the father opened his hand and said, Son, don't worry. The bee has stung me. Here's a stinger. He cannot hurt you anymore. 
Just as the bee loses its sting away, it stings. So death lost its sting when it stung Jesus. Jesus' death earned us the right to challenge death. Death cannot hurt us anymore. The Bible says God gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father gave his son over to be to stung by death. So we don't have to experience the stinging ourselves. Jesus was stung in our place. In order to break the grip of death, death has to be overcome. There were some false teachers in the Corinthian church teaching the heresy that there is no resurrection. So Paul goes into this extensive discussion about the truth of Jesus' resurrection. He presents his case in four arguments. Now I'm going to just give you a quick summary of the previous 54 verses. The four arguments is the first, he presents his case with historical facts. He said Jesus died for our sins in according to the scripture, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scripture. Then the resurrected Jesus appeared to Cephas and the 12 disciples, and then he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. And most of them were still alive at the time Paul wrote this letter. So in other words, you can go ask them, you can go check it out. They are still living. There are a whole bunch of witnesses right there. So that was his first, uh, first argument, historical argument from verse 1 to 11. Then he presents the second argument, verses 12 to 19. This time he used a logical argument. He said, some of you argue that there is no resurrection. If that is the case, then Jesus did not resurrect. If that is the case, that would mean your faith in him is in vain, it's futile. It is just your wishful thinking on your part. And you are still in your sins. If that's the case, the Gentiles are right. The cross is just a foolish tale because there's no hope for you, no hope for your loved ones who died. So the idea that no resurrection is absurd. Then Paul argues, he stands, his point of view, using theological argument, verse 20 to 28. Here, Paul brings out the first Adam and the second Adam theological point. Death is through one man, Adam, comes into the world, and the resurrection is also through one man, Jesus, come to all those who believe in him. Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection, meaning there will be more resurrection to follow. Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority and power. And Jesus will destroy the last enemy, death. This will happen in the, at the final consummation. Fourth and final argument, Paul emphasized the truth of resurrection by appealing to their and his personal experience. Although not subscribing to the practice of baptizing the death, but Paul uses it to argue his point. He said, if the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? The thinking is that by baptizing the dead, 
they install a right for the dead to go to heaven. Then Paul appealed to his own conviction about the certainty of resurrection. If Paul does not believe Christ is resurrected, why would Paul put himself in such a dangerous and difficult life? What is the benefit of that? Paul said, if I don't believe Jesus had resurrected, I would just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. So Paul went through an extensive discussion and argument to prove the facts, the truth of Jesus' resurrection. And because of that, Jesus has earned us the right to challenge death. Because we are in Christ. Jesus Christ's resurrection is the first fruit. And we are the fruits that follow. Jesus earned us the right to challenge death. So we don't have to be in bondage. We are now free to live the way he called us to live. That will bring us to point number three. Verse 58, Therefore, my brother, my beloved brother, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is a common practice of Paul after an extensive discussion on some theological points. He always delivers some kind of a directive or exhortation. Notice the word therefore. Therefore is a word that connects what has been said up to this point and what will come after. It means what is about to be said is the logical and natural conclusion of what has been said. According to Spurgeon, this therefore is an inference of holiness. This means doctrines shall lead to holy living. Doctrinal discussion is not just doctrinal discussion. It is meant to be put into practice. It is not just a set of knowledge, some kind of mind exercise or some logical computation. Doctrine is the basis of our living, a guideline and a pathway unto holiness. In Paul's mind, the doctrine of resurrection should spur us to dutiful service to Jesus. Jesus' victory over sin and death should motivate us to live with a sense of hope and surety. Notice the verb be. Genomai. It means come into existence or to become. This verb is given in present imperative and middle voice. Now what 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 that what what is that means? Present imperative. Imperative basic means is basically means a com- command, a commandment, something that you have to do. Present Imperative means that this is a command that you shall keep all the time, continually, without stopping. It is not a one-time thing. It's a lifelong commitment. Middle voice means a subject will perform an action upon himself or herself. That means that we are to do this. We are to be this. Paul exalted the Christian in Corinth to get involved in and commit to the Lord's work 
and continually in a long-term basis, not just momentarily. He said, stand firm on the doctrine of resurrection because that is the foundation of our hope, our salvation. Do not be moved or persuaded by heresies. Someone says, sound doctrine about our future makes sound living in the present. The fact is that if you are living constantly in fear and uncertainty about your own death, about your own life, you can never really live for Christ freely. If your future is uncertain, one will not let go of the temporal for the eternal. Paul warns Timothy, Timothy about two men, Hymenaeus and Philetus. These two have deviated from the truth and, and, and spreading the heresy about the resurrection has already happened. So it really affected a lot of people. So Paul, his exhortation to the Christians in Corinth is that hold on to this fact, hold on to this truth. Do not be persuaded from it or from uh, by other telling or other teachings. Now, let me look at the phrase abounding in the work of the Lord. Under this phrase, I have three points to share. Paul says Christians not only have to be strong, steadfast, immovable, but they have to be fruitful as well. In Paul's word, abounding in the work of the Lord. The three points I want to bring under this phrase is, the first, notice the difference between the work of the Lord and the work for the Lord. The work of the Lord is the work that the Lord has given each of us. The work for the Lord first is speak to motivation or motive. But there is another thing about it that we should know about. Because sometimes we do work of the Lord that is not conforming to his will. Just because we're doing so-called the work of the Lord does not mean that we are doing it under his will. In that sense, we are not doing the work of the Lord of doing the work for the Lord. Now, I don't really have time to expand on that. I really do hope that one day I will be able to present this particular area more deeply. Second, when Paul says our work should be abounding, that means Christians should not be slackers. There is no lazy Christians. In fact, lazy Christian is an oxymoron. Lazy Christian is disobedient Christian. That too, lazy or disobedient Christian is another oxymoron. Christian always obeys God. When we're acting like a Christian, living like a Christian, we obey God. The moment we disobey God, we are not acting like a Christian. The word abounding means plentiful, abundant, overflowing. The only way to be abundant in the works, in the Lord's work, is to work diligently and energetically. The Bible tells us that we should love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. 
That means we should serve without reservation. Now, that, I, I know statements like that may actually uh, give certain people misunderstanding. Does that mean I have to sell everything that I have? Does that mean that the only way to serve is become a pastor or missionary or something? No, that's not what I meant. Again, time does not allow me to go into full development of this statement, but without reservation basically means that we do not reserve certain things that we would not give up for God if God were to come and ask for it. But if God does not ask for your house, keep it. If God does not ask for your career, continue what you're doing. But should God comes to you and asks you to go to Africa tomorrow, then you make no reservation for yourself. You go to Africa tomorrow. We should do the Lord's work completely with our heart and with our mind and with our strength. When we serve God this way, it does mean that we do have to give up something. Yes, money, conveniences, comfort. Many of you probably know Jim Elliott once said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, isn't that where the rubber meets the road is a Christian life is that we constantly figuring out what to keep and what to give away and what to give up. And I don't mean the things in your garage either, okay? Are you clear on what to keep and what to give up for the Lord's sake? Just remember what Jesus said, your heart is where your treasure is. Thirdly, we are to work we are the work of the Lord before we do the work of the Lord. Now, for that point, I would have to refer to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are the work of the Lord before we do the work of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice the order that Paul presents. We are his work. Then we do his work. The Lord's work is work on this person first. Then we go and do his work. Being is the work of the Lord. Being the work of the Lord is not the same as doing the work of the Lord. Why is this order necessary? Because the Bible tells us even our righteousness is like a filthy rag. None of our work and dedication is acceptable in the holiness of God. If we don't have the righteous rope cover us, our hands are dirty, our minds are dirty, therefore our works are dirty. Our works can be defiled by our ungodliness. And that is exactly the message of Haggai chapter 2. The third message, I was about to preach on that and I switch over to this message today. 
the will of the Lord is that we are holy and righteous. Not that the physical work is not important. They are very important. But doing the holy work in an unholy spirit is abomination in God's eyes. This is why God must work on us first. And then we can work for him. I'll take the last part of verse 58. And we'll close point number three. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the second motive for laboring in Christ. Working for Jesus is not an exercise of futility. Because the Lord does not die and all the work we do in him and for him will last forever. Notice the key word is in him. They have eternal values strictly because we are in him. If you are not in him, none of the things that you do have eternal values. It's amazing to me that it's amazing that the Lord would reward us for the imperfect work that we do. Right? I mean, we, he's going to reward us for what? For the imperfect work that we do. For the imperfect sacrifices. For the imperfect labor. But, the, but our Lord is that gracious. He's going to reward you. Your work will not be in vain. Let me close with this last verse from Hebrews 6.10. God is not so unjust as to look, overlook your work and the love that you have showed for his sake in serving the saints. In conclusion, the fear of death comes from uncertainty. Are you afraid of dying? Is the fear of death grips you tight, so tight that you can't breathe? No pun intended on that. As Christians, we don't have to be afraid because Jesus has swallowed up death. He has victory over death. Upon death, what awaits you is not the God of wrath, but the Father of love. The hands that extend to you are not the hands of judgment but hands of kindness and graciousness. We can challenge death. We can face death head on. We enjoy this assurance because Jesus suffered the sting of death. He overcome death. He gave, he gave us this victory. And to anyone who would put his or her trust in him. And as a result, we should serve him with all our hearts, with all our minds, and with all our strengths. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the victory of death by Jesus Christ. We thank Jesus for taking the stinger so that we don't have to. We thank you for the victory in Christ. And we thank you for giving us over to Christ so that we can be in Christ. We thank you for the message. Thank you for the reminder. May your word has its power to rebuild in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.